Oh, when Moses provided the bread or God through Moses, he gave only a gift. It really cost God nothing. But when God provides the true bread, it costs God everything. It cost him his own son's blood. The Jews had to eat that manna every day. But when one eats of this bread, he eats it once and it lasts forever. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's sermon is entitled, The Bread of Life Discourse, Part 3. We are in a study of the Gospel of John, and over the past few weeks, we have been focusing on Chapter 6, and in particular, the Bread of Life Discourse delivered by the Lord Jesus Christ. As you may recall, Jesus fed the 5,000, then met his disciples on the lake, and this is where he walked on water. The following day, the crowd seeks him out once again to be fed. As we rejoin Pastor Carl, he picks up our text as Jesus compares the bread he has to offer to the manna supplied to the people out in the wilderness as they were led by Moses. Let's rejoin Pastor Carl now as he continues. Take your Bibles, please. Turn to John chapter 6. If you happen to be here for the very first time, we've been working our way through this gospel chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And we're currently in the longest chapter in the gospel of John. Uh, but this chapter, while one of the longest, it's certainly one of the most interesting because in it are many, many great doctrinal truths. Now, before we read our text this morning, I want us to come into the context because many of you are walking into this passage for the first time. Others, you've been with us on this whole series through the gospel, and so you're becoming very familiar with the sixth chapter, but I recognize that repetition is the master teacher as the Apostle Peter tells us in his epistle. If you remember, the chapter opens with some 20,000 people who are miraculously fed. 5,000 men by number, excluding the women and the children, so probably around 20,000 people. And when the Lord does this marvelous miracle, the people want to make him king. They recognize he must be the prophet that Moses wrote about in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And of course, Messiah, the Bible says, would fill three offices, that of prophet, priest, and king. But they want a king for their own selfish purposes. They want a king who will overthrow Rome. And the Lord, knowing their motives, that they're not spiritually pure, he withdraws to the mountain to pray, but not before he orders the disciples to get into a boat and to go to the other side. In the middle of the night, there's a great storm in which the Lord meets the disciples. They had been at the oars for hours rowing, but could not get past the center of the Sea of Galilee. And so the Lord does a triple miracle. He walks on the water. In fact, we didn't study it, but it's in the parallel accounts. He invites Peter to walk on the water, which is a miracle in itself, though Peter doesn't last too long. Um, he then uh, stills the storm speaks to it because he has power over the creation. And then in the twinkling of an eye, the whole boat with all the men in it are instantly transported to the other side. Now, I told you last time that if I were a preacher that just dealt with the highlights of a book, it would be easy to go from that miracle directly into chapter 8. 
But this bread of life discourse, though it is very challenging and difficult to understand, it is critically important. And you're thinking people, and we need to study, the Bible says, and show ourselves approved as workmen who are not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so this miracle really becomes the whole basis for this discourse that follows. And certainly it's not an uninterrupted sermon. There's some hostile listeners who throw a number of questions at the Lord. But it doesn't start that way. It starts with a sense of astonishment. They get up the next morning. They look for the Lord, expecting to find Him there. But He's not there. And they travel to the other side of the lake where they see the disciples, hoping the Lord will follow. But much to their surprise, He's there. And they can't quite figure it out because the only boat that was left was still sitting there on the shore. And so all these boats come from Tiberias. They go across the lake and they see the Lord and they say, when did you get here? And the Lord doesn't really answer their question. He breaks right into this sermon and he gets right to the motives of their hearts. And he says, listen, the reason you're following me is not simply uh, because you're really interested in me. The reason you're following me is because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You you had a great meal. You want me because I fed you and gave you bread and fish. Your thoughts go no higher than the physical plane. And so the Lord gives them this discourse because they didn't really see the significance of the miracle. In fact, when they do see it, they won't like it at all, as we'll see next time. But putting his finger on the problem, he says, don't work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life which the Son of Man shall give to you, for in Him the Father, even God, has set a seal. So he highlights two kinds of food. There is food that sustains us physically. There is spiritual food Himself that makes us alive spiritually. There's the food that you work for, and there's the food that the Son of Man gives you. Because you cannot work for eternal life. It is the gift of God, and it can only be administered through the one door, the one way, Jesus Christ, For in him the Father, even God, has set his seal. So being irritated with that kind of answer to their question that he didn't really ask, uh, answer, they respond in verse 30. They said therefore to him, what then shall you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now, it's really an incredible question in light of the fact that he had just fed 20,000 people. But that's the nature of just quote-unquote miracle faith. It always craves for more. It craves for what you can get. This week, there will be auditoriums across our land that will be packed wall to wall, head to head, with so-called miracle workers, men who claim to have the power to do miracles. And people will throng to those places, to these men who for the most part are fakes, frauds, and phonies, because the Bible is explicitly clear that no man at this point in human history has the ability to do a miracle. Now, God can do a miracle, but 2 Corinthians 12.12 tells us as plain as it can be that one of the marks of an apostle, and to be an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Christ, something that no one can do today. There would be certain signs, wonders, and miracles that would take place through your hand. And so Paul defends his apostleship on that level, It was a meaningless defense if it was something that other people could do. Now, God did miracles through individuals during the great transitional times in spiritual history. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Noah, none of those men ever did a miracle. The first man through whom God did a miracle was Moses. 
And then shortly thereafter, through Joshua as they went into the land. When that transition was over, hundreds of years went by. God didn't do another miracle until Elijah and Elijah stepped on the scene. When they were done, hundreds of years went by, and God didn't do another miracle through an individual until Christ and His apostles came on the scene. And there's going to be a final transition that will usher in the second coming. And the Bible teaches in the Revelation that there's coming two witnesses who will once again do incredible miracles. But these people wanted to see in order to believe. And so Jesus responds, truly, truly, verse 32, I say to you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. He unveils the folly of their thinking. Number one, Moses didn't provide the manner. God did. Number two, what Moses did, he did in the past, is something that God has given you. What I am doing is right now, my Father gives you today, for those who will believe, the true bread that comes out of heaven. What Moses did, though it was real, it was representative, it was a foreshadowing, it was a type, it was an illustration, but what Jesus offers is what he terms here as true bread. And so we saw last time in verses 33 to 51, the Lord drawing a comparison and a contrast between the, Mo the bread that Moses gave in his day and that which came down from heaven. Oh, when Moses provided the bread, or God through Moses, he gave only a gift. It really cost God nothing. But when God provides the true bread, it cost God everything. It cost him his own son's blood. The Jews had to eat that manna every day. But when one eats of this bread, he eats it once and it lasts forever. And so there's a lot of contrast and there are a lot of comparisons. When they picked up the manna, Exodus 16 says, they asked, what is this? It was a mysterious thing to them. And so the Lord Jesus is for many people. It rained always during the night. It was during the morning when they woke up, they found the manna on the ground. Even so, the Lord Jesus Christ came in the dark of night in spiritual darkness to bring salvation. The manna was round, picturing God's eternality. It was small, picturing Christ's humanity. And it was white, picturing His purity. It was sweet to the taste. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ is. The manna met the needs for those people and Jesus meets our needs when we are saved. It was given to a rebellious people just as Jesus Christ died for sinners. Men had to choose to pick the manna up off the ground. You have to choose whether or not you will eat of his body and drink of his blood. Oh, if you failed to pick it up, you would walk on it, and you can choose to walk on Christ but there are grave consequences that come with it. And so he said, verse 33, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Not to sustain life, but to give life. So they say, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. They're just like the woman at the, woman at the well. She said, Lord, give me this water so I won't have to be thirsty and come all the way here to draw water. The Lord had to take her thinking out of the physical and bring it into the spiritual as he does with these people. And so he makes the first of seven great I am statements in the gospel. He said in verse 35, I am. He uses the divine name of God that God identified himself with Moses. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. When you come to Christ, which is equated with believing in Christ, 
He not only satisfies the depths of your soul, your hunger, He quenches the deepest spiritual thirst. Now, that's where we've been. Let's step into our passage, beginning now in verse 51, where we left off last time. Notice, He said, I am the living bread that comes down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread... He shall live forever, and the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews therefore began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also shall live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, He who eats this bread shall live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, as you can see on your note-taking outline, we've divided this paragraph after the three vignettes that are really given in this text. And from those three sections, I want to make three applications. And if you don't write down anything this morning, at least write down the three applications. Because this is not simply what God has said. This is what God is saying. I recognize that there are a number of situations that were unique to the disciples and to that historical era. But understand, God recorded it because there are timeless truths for Christians in every generation. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. And so according to John's true homiletical fashion, he makes three basic points here in verses 51 to 59. He records the Lord's pronouncement. He deals with the people's perplexity, and he concludes with Christ's promises. First, the pronouncement as it comes in verse 51. Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Jesus is saying, if you want to live forever, you've got to come and eat of me. You've got to partake of my flesh that I am going to give to the world. Now, Jesus was the master teacher. He was the prince of preachers. There was never a greater preacher than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we can learn much from his teaching messages about how we can communicate truth. Very often, the Lord would use analogy to teach a spiritual truth. And of course, uh, the figure of eating is a tremendous analogy. Just think about it. Eating is necessary in order to get the benefit of the food. I could have a beautiful feast before me after church today. I could look at it. I could smell it. I could admire it. I could philosophize about it. I could eulogize its qualities. But unless I eat it, it does me absolutely no good. And so the Lord is going to very clearly, plainly say that unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, it will do you absolutely no good whatsoever. Now, there's a lot of people who sit around, they smell the truth, maybe put their noses up at it, they think about the truth, they philosophize the truth, but they do absolutely nothing with the truth. But you must if you're going to be saved. 
Another thing about hunger or about eating is that it's responding to a felt need. A felt need, namely hunger. And usually about 12, 12, 15, I begin to see it set in across this auditorium. You're hungry. You're ready to go. You want to get something to eat. But have you ever been stuffed full? I mean, be honest. How many of you ever been stuffed full? All right. Now, it's not right. <laughs> you know, the Bible speaks of the sin of gluttony. There's not many nations in the world that can commit it as easily as this great land in which God has given to us. But have you ever been so full that just looking at another piece of food kind of nauseates you? Well, you know, according to John 3.19, Jesus thought that some people are so full of the world, so full of their sin, that to talk about being born again, about being saved, absolutely nauseates them. And it's not until you are tired of your sin, sick of your guilt, it's not until you see a real need that the world can never meet that you will flee to the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be ready to eat. I am the living bread which came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh. Now that word flesh is a key word. He's going to repeat it six more times before he's done. It's an important word. So what does he mean here by the term flesh? When he speaks of eating of this bread and the bread that he gives is his flesh, he is not speaking of literally eating his body. And as the verses that follow indicate, it is clearly a reference to his sacrificial death. Please notice, he said, I shall give. He's looking into the future. He's looking at Golgotha. He's set his eyes for the joy before him. He is thinking about the cross and what will follow. And he's speaking about his substitutionary death. It's something that he's going to do. It's a voluntary death. I shall give it. He will say, no one takes it away from me. By my own power and authority, I lay it down. It's substitutionary. It's vicarious. It's voluntary by his own choice. And it's unlimited. It is an unlimited atonement. It is absolute heresy in my judgment to say that Jesus Christ died for a select few. He did not. The atonement of Jesus Christ was for all men. He gave himself his life for the world. But here's the point. If all the Lord Jesus Christ did was come to earth and he said, I'm God, you need to shape up. And then he went back to heaven. It would be disastrous for man. Because then we would have all of the standards in his holy, righteous life would only condemn us before God. You cannot please God by human merit. And that's why the Lord Jesus Christ gave of himself. He gave of himself that you could have life, and I mean real life. And some of us here, we have tried to find life through so many different ways. You've tried it through sex, you've tried it through fame, you've tried it through fortune, through alcohol, through drugs, through any number of things. But they will always come up shallow. They will never satisfy the depths of your heart. It's not until God imparts life that you will really know why God created you. Paul said it in these words in Romans 8. He said, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. The law here referenced to things like the Ten Commandments, what the law could not do. The law was a good thing, Paul said in Romans 7. Not evil, it's a wonderful thing. It's a reflection of God's character, but it couldn't save you. Why? Because it was weak in your flesh. Because of your fallen, Adamic nature, none of us had perfectly kept the law. What the law could not do, God did. How? 
sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Please note, he doesn't say that he sent his son in the likeness of flesh because the flesh, the humanity of Jesus Christ was real. Nor does he say that he sent him in sinful flesh because the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ was sinless. It was both real and sinless. So he says in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Christ became the substitute. He gave Himself. He became an offering in His own flesh for sin so that you, through a second birth from above, can begin dwelt by the Spirit of God and begin to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. And so He says here, I shall give, the, the bread that I give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Now that's the pronouncement that he makes. Very clear, very straightforward. But his pronouncement leads to perplexity. They're scratching their heads. Notice, if you will now, verse 52. The Jews, therefore, began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now they move from grumbling and murmuring, and the argument broke out into the open. The King James calls it striving. The Greek word actually means to fight and to quarrel. They're quarreling. They're fighting amongst one another. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Of course, the Lord is using a figure of speech. But they are thinking purely on a natural, physical, material level. Now, very often when the Lord gave a physical illustration of a spiritual truth, sometimes because of hardness of heart or blindness of eyes, people could only think on a physical level. When Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, he said, how can I re-enter my mother's womb and be born a second time? When he spoke to the woman at the well by which she could partake of water, by which she would never thirst again, she said, sir, how are you going to give me this water? You don't have a bucket and the well is deep. How are you going to get out this living water? Earlier in this chapter when he said, I am the bread that comes out of heaven, they said, oh Lord, forevermore, give us this bread. And here he says, you need to eat my flesh. And they ask, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, obviously, this cannot be taken literally because of what follows. He said, I'm going to give myself for the whole world. I mean, did he really intend for us to think that the whole world is literally going to feast on his body? Was he assuming that we're all going to take minuscule bites out of his flesh, enough for everyone to go around? I think any dullard could see that that's not what's in view. But these people are hung up on it. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Because they're thinking on a purely physical level. They just can't take it in. They can't grasp it. And so with the pronouncement comes the perplexity, which leads us now to the promises. Beginning in verse 53, there are a series of promises where we want to camp the rest of our time this morning that the Lord gives. Notice, Jesus therefore said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Now, it's bad enough that he said you have to eat my flesh. Now he adds to that, you've got to drink my blood. Now, any Old Testament Jew who knew their Bible would find this absolutely repulsive. Circle that word drinking, would you? And write a little arrow out into the margin and jot down this verse. Leviticus 17, 
verse 10. Really, write down Leviticus 17, 10 through 12. Let me read it to you. God plainly, specifically said, And any man from the house of Israel, or from the aliens who sojourn among them, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls." For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Therefore, I said to the sons of Israel, no person among you may eat blood, nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood. Now, God did not want his people to eat blood, and it was not purely for hygienic reasons. It was for a spiritual reason, because of the sacredness of the blood. He said, by reason of the life, the blood makes atonement. Why? Because the life is in the blood, the Bible declares. The penalty for sin is death. And so without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. Only the blood that pictures life can satisfy the debt that we owe before the Lord. And so right in the beginning of Scripture, God highlights the sacredness of blood. Adam and Eve come to God with their fig leaf religion, their own works, their own human effort. They make fig leaves for themselves. God's displeased. And so the very first death in all of human history takes place. God kills an innocent animal and creates coats of skin showing of the necessity of a blood atonement. He accepted Abel's offering. He rejected Cain because one brought the fruit of his own work. The other brought a blood sacrifice. He asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac up there on Mount Moriah, which is also Mount Calvary. And he asked him to take his uniquely begotten son. He was a uniquely begotten born, a term used of only two people in all the Bible, of Isaac and Christ, because Isaac, the Bible says, is a type of Christ. He was a miracle baby given to a couple who were long beyond their ability to conceive. And he brought him up there on Mount Moriah, believing that he would come back, believing that God would raise him out of the ashes back to a new life. But you know the rest of the story, how God intervened. But God was showing that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. He instituted the Passover land, lamb and then the entire sacrificial system. There are rivers of blood that go through the entire Old Testament, ultimately pointing towards that one blood sacrifice of Christ. And so the Lord says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in Himself. What is He doing? He's pointing forward to His sacrificial death. And so the law of Moses forbade the drinking of blood and the meeting of eat, and even eating meat with the blood still in it. Why? Because it was sacred. And so God was highlighting the sacredness of Christ's blood. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, obviously, the Lord was not asking these people to violate, to disobey what God had specifically commanded in the Old Testament. He would never do that. He never tempted men to sin. He only called them to obedience and holiness. So what did he mean? Well, please notice, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. Please notice the promise here that we will be raised up on the last day if we eat His flesh and drink His blood. Now, where else did you see that phrase, raised up on the last day? Well, look back in verse 40. It said, for this is the will of my Father, 
that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 019. If you have a question that you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally, you can do that tomorrow between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.